The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome to a new episode of The Shaken and Stirred Show. I'm Nigel Barker in New York, and I'm with my saint of a co-host, Tom Astor in Oxford, England. How are you, Tom? Nigel, I'm exhausted, actually. I'm very well, though, other than that. Very why are you tired. so exhausted? What, what, why? We, I had a very exhausting weekend. We had a, uh, this probably quite probably quite interesting for the American listeners. Um, I was with my brother. We took our hot rods down to the Goodwood Revival, which is just one of the big, biggest biggest collections of um, classic cars in the world on on um, on uh, the, the race at Goodwood Racing Circuit. And um, uh, we were allowed to take our hot rods there, and we were allowed to do get it. We were allowed to join the parade lap um, of hot rods, but it involved getting our hot rods into the grounds before seven o'clock in the morning before the crowds arrived. Um, but it was absolutely amazing. We were um, we were we were allowed to go around the circuit. We were hammering them around the circuit, and it was um, how fast does your hot rod go? I mean, in a straight line. Well, know, yeah. you, could, you could probably do a hunt. I mean, you could do a hunt. Well, you could do anything you want, depending on the gearing. But I mean, you could, you know, hundred anywhere between 150, 180, you know, if you wanted to, if you were that brave. I didn't. I didn't. It wasn't a straight line. It was a racing English racing circuit. The old, which hasn't changed since it was, um, since it was designed uh, seventy-five years ago. Um, your, so, your brother Henry, who was a, a guest on the Shaken and Stirred show, for, so for folks if you're listening to this, you can actually tune in to Henry's episode where he, you know, other than the fact that we we all take the the Mickey out of each other because we've known each other since school, and he's Tom's brother, also talks about hot rodding and and actually the car itself. So this is a bit of a flashback moment, but um. Tom, how, how much fun is that? I did see pictures actually on Henry's Instagram of the, the cars all lined up. Uh, did, he, did, he get, did he get some good shots? And I got my, um, did he get some good pictures of it? It was actually amazing. I mean, it was an amazing suspect. I just want to know what, what day was this, Saturday or Sunday? Both. I went. I did the parade on Saturday and Sunday. He did the. He did it on Saturday, just Saturday. Okay, but no wonder you're so exhausted. Two days of parading. That's enough to put you under for weeks. Two days of parading, and then, yeah, and then a, a few early starts as well. So, um, um, yes, yes. I hope, well, I hope you're drinking something Goodwood inspired. What are we drinking? You know what I'm drinking? I'm drinking. I'm so fed up with not um, um, being remunerated for our podcast efforts and bringing this, you know, our humour and wit and um, things to the to, to the airwaves. That I just literally picked out what's quite popular in English garages, which is probably, which, is, which I don't think you're allowed to buy alcohol in an American garage today, are you? There you are, you can actually. Some sell beer, surprisingly well, enough, and, and sort of, I, you know, spiked I, water. Just, you know, you can't even pronounce that, actually. I mean, can you, can you pronounce that? Kepras, I don't know. Keepers. Maybe that's what- Keepers. It may, probably should say keepers, but after a few, it probably says kept, keep, I don't know, you probably pronounce it like that. Anyway, K-E-P-R-S is how it is what it's written on the can, people. I thought as I was as I went to the um, shops earlier to sort of you know mull over what what's the cocktails I have, I just saw a ready mixed one. I thought I'm so tired that actually I'm not even going to mix my own. I'm going to let someone else do it for me. So I'm drinking passion fruit and elderflower seltzer. Well, on that note, 
I took it to a complete level. I decided to look up again on one of my favorite websites, liqueur or liquor.com, liqueur.com. I'm not sure which one it is. But anyway, I was looking at some ancient, look how great this looks in this fabulous coupe glass, this red, beautiful sort of off red um, liqueur I'm drinking. But it is known as the Charlie Chaplin. And I loved it and why, why I went for it was because it was first created um, at, in New York City's Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Yes, Tom, your great grandfather, I believe's hotel, it was created in his bar. Um, and um, actually this cocktail, which is a pre-prohibition cocktail uh, created prior to the 1920s, uh, actually appeared in the old Waldorf Astoria bar book. Um, so oh. it has a lot of provenance to it, and it is very easy to make. It's uh, slow gin, apricot brandy, and lemon or lime juice. It, there's apparently there's a bit of dispute between who there's two bartenders, and they like to make it different ways, and so depending on which side of the bar you're at. Um, but um, it, it's it's very syrupy. It's incredibly sweet and very delicious, and uh, I've been enjoying it. And it sort of has it sort of, I guess I don't know. It, it's so syrupy that it somehow it reminds me of sort of Hollywood opulence as I drink it. I can imagine myself in the Waldorf Astoria right now in the pre, you know pre-prohibition smoke in the air, uh, very glamorous. So there, cheers, my friend. You probably would have been making the drink. Um, cheers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice snowy, snowy air. Back at it again. Okay, so yes, and also I like yeah. On that note, show you actually photograph. I, I have a copy of it in my downstairs loop of Charlie Chaplin and my great grandmother. There George you go. Brown. You got to send me that. Yeah, I love that. Well, so there you go. There is talk about a story. I just talked about a cocktail called the Charlie Chaplin, made at Tom's grandfather's hotel, great grandfather's hotel, and there is a photograph that Tom has of his great grandfather with Charlie Chaplin. Brilliant, love it. Who knew? I didn't know. Love it when things come together like that. On to booze news. Extraordinary or not extraordinary, once again, Sam Adams is about to release its Utopia beer. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Utopia Sam Adams beer, it's produced every two years, and it is a combination of all its other beers, tiny pieces of it, and then it's brewed in, and they put it in different barrels, they add different elements to it, and they create a beer that is, get this, 28% proof. A beer that is 28% proof. It's basically like a liqueur. It's like vodka. And by the way, this bottle of beer retails at a shocking $240 for a bottle of beer. Okay, people, it better be good is all I can say. What do you have to say I about that, Tom? I was about to ask you if you tried it, but obviously you haven't. I haven't tried it yet. I would like to try it because I think it's fascinating. Interestingly enough, it's illegal in 15 of 15 states in the United States. So you can't buy it in places like Alabama and Texas and especially in the South. You're unable to buy it because of the alcohol content is so high and because it's registered as a beer. I guess there's a limit to how much alcohol you can find in beer, um, which I think is hilarious. But you can get it in New York and it is going to be released in October. So very, very soon you'll be able to get this and they only make a limited number of them. So catch it while you can at $240 a pop. That makes me, reminds me of, you'll remember from your days living in England, um, Special Brew. Special Brew, which was, which was really what 
sort of drunks and homeless people used to drink because they could buy exactly. one and get absolutely hammered. Except at 240 bucks a bottle, I don't think they were drinking special brew. No, but the point is that the other sip, everything else about it is completely similar. It's very, very high in alcohol content. Um, and they made a limited number of them because there's only a limited number of people actually wanted to drink this. Um, how many do they make? Um, I'm not sure how many they make, actually. Uh, let me have a look here. Let me see if I can find the, the details on... It just says, it just says a limited number um, are made. In, so, no, I don't have any exact numbers. I'm why, it, why is that even a good thing? I mean, why is this... Why, like, why, why is this a good thing? Why, you're telling the story about Sam Adams, which produces very popular beers in America. They're producing a beer which is undrinkable. I think, make... I think it's probably just a something for marketing, right? This is some way of capturing everyone's attention, talking about something, staying relevant in the news, doing something a bit crazy and, and out there and zany. And people like to collect, right? There's, I bet you anything, there are bottles of this beer never been opened, sitting on people's shelves, and they like to say that they have a $240 bottle of Sam Adams. For the man who has everything, here's a bottle of $240, you know, limited edition Utopia Sam Adams made by the Boston well. Company. And people do, you're right, people do like to collect. In fact, I've guessed tonight that giving nothing away, like, has actually, I was looking at his um, biography and, and, and looking him up and seeing what he was, who he was and all the rest of it. And um, he like, he collects the own, his, the own, his own product that he produces. That's what I'm going to say. Like old uh, vintage um, items of what he produces. I just said something, I just explained it without giving anything away. Wow, I have no idea what he's talking about, people, but hint, hint, it's time to introduce our guest. It's high time that I introduce our guest. Yes, I'm gonna be, it's gonna be a drinking game. So all night long, guys, if I say time, I want you to have a sip. Our guest today is a board member of New York Cares, New York's largest volunteer network. He's the chairman of Adweek's advisory board, and he's been named to Adweek's 50, which recognizes the 50 most indispensable individuals in media, marketing, and tech. Oh, and he also happens to be the president of Time Magazine. Please welcome Keith Grossman. Hey, Keith. How are you? <laughs> I'm very, very well. This is hilarious. This is the interview that started pre the interview. There's either going to be a producer's nightmare or they're just going to let it run because it's, it's, it is I what it is. Run right, like you know, like if you look at like old shows, it used to start off where like everything gets introduced, and then like you look at shows today, like they literally bring you into the plot line before they start to give you like what you've been watching, and that I feel like that's what we are right now. We're very Absolutely. modern sort of take on podcasting. We, clearly, that is what is happening, and we've already done camera angles. We've already talked about what you're drinking, but go again. What are you drinking? I'm drinking Lacroix's finest lemon. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I drink two things on a consistent basis. I either am dehydrating myself with black coffee or rehydrating myself with LaCroix, lemon or coconut. And do you not drink any alcohol at all? I, I drink less than two drinks a month. So you drink less than two drinks a month. What does that mean? Like you drink one month, drink a month? What does that even mean? I, I drink one drink a month, maybe. <laughs> so wait a second, you do drink 
And then you come on a podcast like The Shaken and Stirred Show, a cocktail-based interview show. And the one time a month, like, this could have been the one time. Instead, no, we're drinking seltzer water. Well, no, no, no. So the, the reason that I'm drinking seltzer is that um, if we had scheduled this at like 9 p.m. at night, and I didn't have something after this, I think I would have had a drink. But because I had two or three things after this, I was so nervous about drinking beforehand because what if I got onto the next call, which happens to be very important, and I said something like, and another thing. <laughs> well, you do know it's five o'clock somewhere, Keith. And ultimately, it's five o'clock where you are, in New York City right now, I believe. But you can also fake it. You know, you can fake it till you make it. You could have just worked with me. You could have made yourself a cocktail. Nice. Could have nice. Nice. Unbelievable. Nice. nice. Look, you're on your own, mate. You're, you're the odd one out here. I'm drinking hard seltzer. He's drinking soft seltzer. And I'm drinking, drinking, and I'm drinking a Charlie Chaplin from the 1920s. And Tom just produced a picture of Charlie Chaplin with his great grandfather. And this particular drink was first created by a bartender in Tom's grandfather's hotel, the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, back in the day. So I'm I'm really playing along here, people. Hold this on, hold on. What I is work. in a Charlie Chaplin, out of curiosity? What's Sorry. in a Charlie Chaplin? In a Charlie Chaplin is slow gin, uh, lime juice, and apricot brandy. Ooh. You know yeah. what? I would drink that. I'm not shocked. It sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was a comedian, first of all. So you know, it, it's a kind of a comedic drink. When you, when you listen to the ingredients and then you taste it, it is absolutely ridiculously high in, in sort of sweetness and syrupiness. And you know, it's like drinking cough medicine that's sort of sweet, but kind of delicious at the same time. I'm not sure if I'm going to get through it because every time I take a sip, I'm like, hmm, I need a glass of LaCroix to go with it. But 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 what is your is that your normal drink of choice? Because like no, my normal... I, I, I try to every something different every week. That's what I do. You know that's that's my take on this stuff. But uh, you know it's I, but hey, I'm trying to you know educate the, the the listener out there. And you guys, you know me, I'll, I'll try something different. Tom is pretty much a straight shooter, classic cocktail guy. And you know most of our guests make an effort, but you know it's okay. It's it's just a there's a time there's a time and place for everything. That is that is not true. That is just not true. Most of our guests make an effort. That is just not true. I, I mean, a lot of a lot of guests, by the way, if it's any consolation, Keith, um, don't don't. A lot of them don't drink, which is really, which I think something to do with our like our R and D, or not even R and D, our research department when we are actually, you know, kind of, you know, finding people to put on the show. Well, I don't know. It, no, it's because they're all actors from Los Angeles, Tom. Well, let me wait, wait. Where is Tom students. located out of? Tom, where are you located out of? I'm in Oxfordshire in England. Oh, well, thank you for, for staying up. That's quite all right. It's my pleasure, I hope. I mean, so far, so good. On that note, on that, on that <laughs> note. <laughs> so, far we've, so far, we've got a really serious guest on, you know, serious guest on, you know, what I, what I would call, almost call, you know, high-achieving, serious guest, you know, moving and shaking and actually creating a difference and actually creating a difference in the world and what we read and what we see. And so far, literally, um, we've discussed how great everyone thinks Nigel is, which was a, which was a terrible thing to say to him, blowing smoke off his ass, especially at the beginning of an interview. And the second thing is um, ribbing our guest about the fact he hasn't got an alcoholic drink when he is not the first one to turn up with it, but he's the first one to turn up with that particular drink. So. Shall we ask some questions tonight? I mean, do you want to, you know? 
Let's let's just dive straight in, shall we? All right, uh, Keith, are you ready? They're set questions. They're set questions. There aren't exactly set questions, but for you, there are right. a few. You are, okay. like Tom said, a sort of a high achiever. You are okay. a uh, someone who you know has a very serious job. Most people we have on this show, you know, have to find their jobs. In, you know, they're, they're sort of in between jobs when they speak to us. But you are not. You're actually currently of employ. Um, and as I as I looked at your bio, <laughs> I'm knocking on wood on this one. <laughs> <laughs> that I after, okay. this, after this interview, you will no longer okay. be. But that's okay. We're looking for someone to help intern here at Shaken and Stirred Show. And your bio and your resume looks like you could be up for the gig. Um, let's get down to basics. I mean, I already listed your, when I did your intro all the different things yeah. you do, and you are you do a lot of wonderful things. And you and I met through the actress Cat Graham originally, and you know it was kind of an unusual intro. And, and she's a wonderful person, and you, you're surrounded by wonderful people. But I'd love it if you could actually take us back a little bit in your own life, and because there isn't, there's not a lot of information about you as as a as a sort of growing up. What was your life like as a child? Where did you grow up? And just just take us through that for a moment. Sure. So so I grew up in New York City, and I have a very boring story. I mean, I grew up on the Upper East Side of New York City, and I went to school upstate New York, and I now live on the Upper West Side of New York City. And uh, almost all of my jobs have been within a two mile radius of where I am. So I'm sort of like a bubble boy, right? And, uh, uh, you know, um, when I grew up, I went to a high school called Riverdale Country School, which I love dearly. And uh, that's where my daughter goes uh, today. And, uh, and I, it's, it's, it's really um, a special feeling to see her in the same environment that I was in at her size. And, uh, uh, and then I went to Cornell, upstate New York, and I was a government major. And um, when I was at school, um, my parents moved to California. And um, I thought I would always go into finance uh, for a living. And I didn't know what to do and, with my life. And uh, my cousin and my aunt worked at Condé Nast. And one summer when my parents were moving, they said, why don't you intern at Condé Nast? And I said, what's that? And they said, it's, it's magazines. And my cousin was actually at Vogue, uh, Nigel. And uh, mm. uh, she, she went from accessories assistant to accessories editor at Vogue for many years. And then, um, and I got an internship at Condé Nast. And I'll never forget the first day I walked in. I just said, oh my God, this is a business. I could do this for a living. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I was at Condé Nast for uh, 12 years. As you can see me behind me, I have a bunch of wireds, which is where I was, and, and slightly at Portfolio. And um, from Condé Nast, after uh, being there um, and going from intern up to associate publisher of Wired, I went over to Bloomberg Media and, uh, and worked there and uh, became uh, the global chief revenue officer ultimately there. And uh, that was actually, it was very interesting because you know when I was at Bloomberg, one of the most important lessons that I learned was the importance of actually using your role or your position to actually give back to the world. Mm. Uh, most people don't realize that Bloomberg is a Robin Hood organization, right, uh, it, technically. Uh, almost all the profits of Bloomberg at the end of the year go into Bloomberg Philanthropies. And, the day that I became 
global chief revenue officer, I'll never forget that Mike said to me, you know, you've just been put in a really important position within the company. You better use that position to better the world. And people remember you for what you do and how you give back. And that's ultimately how I got into New York Cares. And then I came over to Time. And uh, uh, I've been at Time now for a little over two years. And it's been um, uh, an amazing uh, two years. Uh, I've met some incredible people, you know, along the entire journey. Um, some people from my Wired days are with me today at Time. Some people at the Bloomberg days are with me at Time. But then I met people like Kat Graham. And the way I met Kat was randomly, um, you know, like uh, somebody had made a, a shirt for me um, uh, that was a joke that said Time in Hebrew on it. And little did I know that Kat Graham read Hebrew and I showed somebody the shirt and she read it in front of me. And I'm like, and I had no idea who she was. And, and we started talking and I said, are you, um, what do you do? Are you a UN, do you work for the UN? Because, you know, she does so much for the humanitarian stuff. And then she told me, no, she's an actor. So I no, said, wait a second, you didn't ask her if she worked at the UN because she does so much work. You just didn't know who she was, right? You I didn't know who she was. And then I was like, she was telling me about her humanitarian stuff. So I was like, do you work for the UN? And she's like, no, I'm an actor. So I was like, what, what, did, what are you in? And I was like, and she started naming all the stuff. And I'm like, I haven't seen any of it. And um, and, I, and then she's like, you haven't seen it. And she's like, Vampire Diaries. I was like, and so I looked at her, I go, do I look like a 14 year old girl to you? And she started laughing. And then we started joking. I'll never forget this. We started joking about Instagram. And I said to her, you know, what I don't understand about Instagram is, is I have all these people on Instagram that follow me, but I really only have like two or three friends in real life, right? And she goes, me too. And then, then we left. And then I looked her up on Instagram and it's like, I have like 1200 followers at the time. She's like 5 million followers. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like- <laughs> That cat Graham. And I was like, exactly. that's amazing. And, you know, like, I think the fact that we had met, uh, you know, uh, uh, in such a serendipitous way was, was what was this, what spawned such a fun relationship between us. And she's just a dear, dear friend. You know, investing can be confusing for most, especially when it comes to cryptocurrency. And it's always been hard for me to know where to start. Well, on public.com, you can start small with slices of shares while you invest in what you believe, with any amount. And you can learn how to invest in popular cryptocurrencies with ease. Since joining public, I've been able to learn more about stocks, EFTs, and crypto, and I'm surrounded by a community that makes investing less intimidating. I'm already feeling much more confident knowing that I'm never investing alone. You can choose from thousands of stocks and ETFs, along with 10 popular cryptocurrencies, and get exclusive access to a growing community full of fellow investors. Public.com allows anyone to invest with confidence and safely with volatility reminders that let you know investments like crypto are a little riskier. Start investing with as little as $1 and get a free slice of stock up to $50 when you join Public.com today. Visit Public.com shaken to download the app and sign up. That's Public.com shaken valid for US residents 18 and older. Subject to account approval, see public.com slash disclosures, not 
investment advice. Now, if I can, for one second, Nigel, can I can I tell the podcast how I met you? I, absolutely. I was going to say, there's, you know, you 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 mentioned the fact that you're not a 14 year old little girl. Um, however, my audience are also 14 year old girls, but um, that somehow is not a factor when it comes to how you know me. So, so um, there was this day, like everyone, right? Like Tom, I don't know if you have this in, in, in the UK where there's like one channel that you always wake up to and you watch on TV. But like, I wake up every morning and I put on New York One. And there's this day where Nigel's on New York One and he's talking about his new company. And I go, hey, that's Nigel Barker, right? To my wife and my wife goes yeah how do you know that because i never know anyone like i just like i just don't think like that and, and she's like he's, he's the, the the judge from america's next top model and uh and then uh my wife was like you're crazy like the fact that you recalled that is is insane and then two days later cat graham is like i want to introduce you to my friend nigel barker and i said i know exactly who you are I go because when I graduated from college and I started dating my wife, I watched endless hours of America's Next Top Model. <laughs> and for that, I apologize. <laughs> and, and so I know exactly who you are. <laughs> and I saw you on New York One two days ago. Was that not my first email to you? That was our first, literally our first correspondence was this sort of hilarious, in which case I was like, Honey, look, this is from the president of Time magazine. You have to look at what he's written. I said, I wouldn't normally do this, but it's pretty darn funny. <laughs> I'm like, I want to frame this email, stick it in the bathroom because no one would believe it. As you, anyway, true story, folks. <laughs> that was our first correspondence. And we sort of became friends because I think I joked back at you and we, you know, there's been a few back and forths and you have this great thing called, what, what is it, the, the Time Insiders. Inside, um, by time. inside by time and, and you brought together all kinds of great people and you very kindly asked me to be a part of the group and I've had you know the opportunity to, to listen and even speak um, briefly uh, you know during these incredibly informative events that you have online and and anyway we, we sort of got to know one another digitally this is a sort of a new phenomenon, this sort of digital friend, you know, where I'm yet to see you from the sort of any anywhere other than the waist up. Um, and I, every time I see you, I somehow I'm correcting your camera angle. It literally, I feel like I'm in a movie, like like Simone, that weird movie that was all about the cyborg. And I'm sure you remember that uh, Cameron movie back in the day. Uh, but that's how it feels. Well, I, I will tell you this, right? Like, um. Uh, you know, like I, I could tell you two things that are about me that I learned about growing up in New York City and about camera angles. The first is is that uh, uh, since I have no concept of my camera angle, which is why I constantly ask you for advice, given that you're the professional here, um, the number one comment I get when people meet me for the first time is, "Did you lose weight?" Okay, which is <laughs> which is that the camera angle is always off with me, right? Um, the second thing, and I learned this growing up in New York City, was um, growing up, I thought I was legitimately a tall human being at about 5'9", okay? <laughs> like, I thought all women were 5'1". I thought I was a huge person. Like, my entire football team at Riverdale, I think, was close to 5'7". I thought I was a giant. 
And then I went up to Cornell and I joined, I, I pulled the summer of George, right? I joined everything that was opposite of my life. So I joined a non-Jewish fraternity uh, called Sayu. And, uh, and everyone was from Ohio and everyone was, was six, five and all the women were five, nine, right? And so all of a sudden I realized like, wow, my life was really skewed. So there was no way I could come back to New York City and live on the east side. That's why I ended up on the west side. That is hilarious. <laughs> completely opposite but that's when you and i finally get to meet each other because you're a pretty tall guy right like aren't you like six three i'm almost six four yeah so yeah there you go hey hey you know but height is yeah, you know. yeah. sorry kids you see that you hear see even people who are tall by the way so you don't want to worry even people who are tall still suffer insecurity Dai said you said aren't you like six three he could have just said yes right but that no, six three is not good enough because it's just not quite enough Almost six four is what he said. Which, which I, really I love that you picked that up. By the way, Tom, I, mean, I was about to jump in on that. I'm like, what an arrogant comment. But right? why is it arrogant <laughs> to be tall? You're assuming that height is a, somehow better. That is their point here. Is that it's not. It's just it's completely irrelevant. And in fact, I can, if I was to name the number of times that I can't fit in something, <laughs> I can't get something, and it's like whatever. It's like it's not helpful to be six foot four. It's actually a pain in the ass. So actually, you're not six four. You're almost six four, right? I am almost six four. Oh. I, used, I think I used to be. I'm now shrinking. <laughs> I got measured recently, and I was like six three and a half. So I was like, oh, that's really annoying. Um, but anyway, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. Mo moving swiftly on. I, I want to get into your because you sort of when you were talking about your life and you kind of got into it, and then I took the job at Time Magazine. You know, it was like, well, wait a second. First of all, you were you know, successful there at, at where you were before, Wired and everything else. What made you think, okay, Time? Because Time magazine, as you've said in previous interviews and things, you know, was sort of in decline and you know, needed a big shakeup. Was that the reason or, or because it was a heritage brand? But it seemed almost like it could have been a bit of a risk for you. You weren't going to some place that was perhaps soaring. I mean, I gotta say, since you've taken on at Time, I think time is everything now, and I I love what you're doing there, and we'll get to that too. But I'm curious as to what was your thought process at the at the time. No, no, no. So first, first off, I'll I'll step back and say thank you. You know, like it is like the team at Time is amazing, and like everyone is is been especially in this pandemic so heads down, just trying their best to just create like a fun, great, relevant product and experience, right? And and so like when you say that, like I can't let it go without just saying thank you and just telling you how much it's appreciated because you know sometimes when your head's down and you're just going, 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 like it it, it you could forget like the impact that that you could have on the outside. So that comment means the world to me and it means the world to to the entirety team at at time. Um but I love that. But how about this one? Ooh, yes, I know. This was the meme, the meme that shook the world, right? It was. Uh, uh, and we can get that to that in a second. So um, like for me, historically, I, you know, like what I like is I look at jobs and roles uh, through the lens of um, debate club meets investment advisor. And what I try to think about is, is my job ultimately is, uh, can I formulate the debate and win the debate why time? Why is time relevant to you? Why should you read time? Why should you care about time? Um, and then I look at the investment and I think to myself, um, like, like, is the audience there? Is the brand 
trustworthy? Is the brand valuable? Is like, like, like what are the components of, of an investment? And that's not just for time. That is for Bloomberg when I went there, right? Like when I went to Bloomberg, I was asked by somebody, why are you going there? It's not a media company. And I would argue very much today that Bloomberg Media is, is a very, very powerful media company in that, in that space. But in 2014, that was the question that was posed to me. Um, when I went to Wired, right, like uh, right out of college, people were like, why are you going there? The internet's a fad, right? Like uh, it, when I went back to Wired, right, like uh, leaving portfolio for my first managerial role, like, are you kidding me? Why would you go back there, right? Like the world is ending in 2008, 2009. Like this is ridiculous. Um, but I look, what I really look for in all of the roles that I've ever taken is, um, is the investment aspect, forget the debate aspect for a second, but is the investment aspect depressed versus what the marketplace reality is, right? And so, or what it could be. And so in the case of time, like, you know, I asked Mark and Lynn Benioff, who are the owners, while I was talking to them, like, why did you buy this brand? And they both gave me the same answer. And then Mark gave me a slightly different answer. And I'll tell you, tell you both. And for them, they both said that they did not like the state of, of how journalism was rolling out in the world. And they felt that um, it was getting very polarized and that they liked and respected the uh, objectivity that time has and the optimism that time has um, uh, and the inclusiveness that time has and has had for about a hundred years now. And um, as the media landscape shifts, you know, you could do a lot with a media brand if you don't have to think about the next week, but rather you could think about it in terms of years or even half a year or, you know, um, uh, you know, longer timeframes and horizons. And that's, that's what attracted me always to like Condé Nast or to Bloomberg or, you know, ultimately here is, is the ability to make sure that like we could do what's right for the consumer and then apply it to the brand. So that way the brand can evolve with consumer behaviors, but like you don't have to rush it or cut corners or try to cut margins to, to make things work in the short term. You can play a very long-term game. And I think that that's why we've seen a lot of success in studios, right? Which, you know, has struck a deal with the, for Kanye West's documentary that we sold to Netflix, which did the inspiration for documentary on Netflix, which is doing the Time 100 Women on, you know, uh, 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 Amazon Prime, which did the Time 100 last night on ABC, right? Which will do person of the year this year, you know, most likely again on on. Uh, you know, one of the major networks. And, you know, for are us- these initiatives, Keith, sorry to interrupt, are these initiatives yeah. that you, that you sort of, that you pioneered or were they, or, or on sort of ongoing? So we, I was very lucky, like when I came on board, like there's an incredible talented individual in the organization um, named Ian Orifice. And he had the vision for Time Studios. And like in that instance, like we just, stepped back and let him and his team run with it. And he has taught me so much about this space and has done just an incredible job with that. For me, right, like when you look at time back in, let's say 2019, nearly 70% of its revenue was coming from print, right? And that's just not sustainable for the next hundred years. Right? From subscriptions, basically. Print, subscriptions are advertising really. Right. And so, 
you know, uh, nearly 10%, 11% was digital advertising or digital revenue. And so we were very quick to start to evolve the organization, you know, uh, fix a lot of the tech debt. And, you know, we hired an incredible CTO, incredible marketing team, really, you know, focused on building the sales team up. And, um, and we started to really diversify our offerings into the digital space. And then in March of this year, um, we entered into the NFT space and mm. into the crypto space. And it's in the next couple of weeks, then you will have seen a major initiative get launched, which is going to happen in the, probably in the next few hours, right? Um, uh, surrounding uh, Time's use of NFTs to create community and a loyalty program, as opposed to the traditional analog relationship that we have with our consumers. And, you know, I saw that you just bought a long necky lady. Right. I, I bought a long necky lady introduced to long necky ladies by you. Okay. I, and like, and I will tell you that, like, I think that people are missing out on the long necky ladies, not just about the art. It's about so the everyone community. out there. Long necky ladies and an NFT um, created by a young 12 year old girl called Nyla Hayes who, if you were listening at the beginning, um, you talked about a top model alum, uh, who Alison Harvard, who's an extraordinary character, person, personality, was an amazing contestant, has gone on to do very cool things in fashion space in general, uh, and, and is, is a very unique maverick in the space, and somehow is a friend of yours as well. And she also connected with me when somehow you guys were in a clubhouse room talking about all of this i mean i wanted to get to all of this i love the organic way we've come around to it but i mean for a moment just take us to what you're talking about because i because how did all that come together in itself how did how did the nfts come together well how did the how are you how did you end up in a room with a 12 year old nyla hayes and alison harvard talking about that, well, that her her that nft was, I mean, that was I mean, like, like so we were all on so i just logged onto clubhouse one day and i saw john knopf and another individual with these uh long necky ladies as their avatars and i said what is that and they said, oh, my God, you don't know about long necky ladies. And I said, no, what? And they said, it's this 12-year-old girl, Nyla Hayes. She wanted to celebrate sort of uh, femininity, plus her favorite uh, dinosaur is the Brontosaurus. And she created this series. It's just so creative, and it's so innocent, and it's so genuinely good. And so I said, oh, like, 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 uh, like, that's so cool. And I went online and I bought a few, like the day of the minting, right? I bought them like on the day of the minting. And then all of a sudden, like they invited her into the room and I, and, uh, and, and everyone in the room, we had like five, 600 people in this room. And it was like out of nowhere. It was like a random Thursday or something. Um, all had long necky lady avatars on. So I called Nyla up. I brought her up onto stage. She was with her mother. And, and I said to her, um, look, Nyla, I want to be very protective of you because you're 12 years old. And I have, I have an eight-year-old daughter, right? She's turning eight. So she's like your 6'4", right? She's almost eight, right? So she's, <laughs> she's turning eight on, on, uh, on November 9th. Yeah. So, so she's, she's almost 6'4", Nigel, right? And, uh, uh, and, uh, and so I said, Nyla, I want to be very protective of you because you're 12. But all of these people in the audience have your work as their avatars, um, would you be okay if I called them all up onto stage? And Alice and Harvard was, I think, in the room at the time. And, 
And I just brought everyone up who had a long necky lady as their avatar. And I didn't say anything for literally 45 minutes. I just shut up and the whole room just commended this girl. I said, to, the only thing I did say was if anyone is rude or disrespectful, I will boot you off the stage immediately because this is a 12 year old girl who is in the space and we have to respect that. And, um, and everyone could not have been more kind and more sweet. And then, uh, then Allison and I became friends through, through that and through the Cool Cats community, which- so This which, is another NFT, Cool Cats people. Another NFT, right? I, I mean, look, look it's such By the a- way, you see why I drink seltzer, because I'm just, I'm just one cool human being, right? I mean, you're, you're trapped in a digital void. I mean, do you even exist, Keith? I'm just now beginning to wonder whether you actually might be an NFT of your own. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, can I tell you that that I, I've learned a few things over the past two years, you know, or a year and a half of us being in this in this you know cockamamie existence. One is is that these technologies are endlessly efficient. Two is is um, uh, they're so emotionally devoid. Right. Um, last night, I had dinner with two people who I've known for nine months and have spoken to almost nearly every day. And like when we sat down for dinner, I expect it'll be the same thing as when you and I meet for the first time, Nigel, where it's like we didn't even like pause. <laughs> like there was like no pause, like, oh, my God, this is the first time we've met. It's just this weird existence of like we've built these weird relationships over what is a common, bizarre existence coexistence together no a hundred percent a hundred percent you know it, it, it's it's if all of you out there you know we expect you all to know what an nft is but you know it, it's not as actually you know not everyone is fully aware of how these things work how they, i mean i myself have done multiple i guess you know no say classes on it but i've listened to all kinds of chat rooms about it i've read articles about it i've kind of got into it you know it, a, a non-fungible token or whatever however it, it, but it's ultimately artwork digital artwork that you can buy and and you know and there's sort of limited editions of and the artists can potentially have a royalty on ongoing sales so there's a ways for them to continue to make money which is an unusual you know uh, sort of practice and there's and it's a, it's a just a, a, another extension of the art world you want to can, uh, add well, to that so, so, so can i add to that because i'll give you i'll really this is why i'm so happy i'm not drinking and i can tell you very soberly like like a really interesting way to think about nfts right like because like the easiest way to think about this is first and foremost in the art world and in collectibles but it's so much more than that and that's what actually has me so impressed and blown away by what is happening. Like, I actually think that this is a bigger revolution or evolution than, or just as big as, as you know, the technological revolutions that took place in 1993. And like, if you think about sort of like the past, I don't know, like, like we'll say 30 years, right? So in 1993, you're all of a sudden like, wow, there's this thing called the internet and I can get information online. And every day from 1993 forward, it's gotten better and cooler and more interesting, right? And like, and you're seeing things online. And then in 2007, social media comes out, right? And all of a sudden you're like, wow, not only can I get information online, but I can actually put my identity online, right? And I could put it on Facebook and I could put it on Twitter and I could put it on Instagram and I could put it on you know, Google and, and all of these other platforms. But as the consumer, you're renting your identity 
to these platforms. And in return for them giving you access, what, what's really happening is, is they're sitting back and saying, I'm going to take all your data and I'm going to use all your data and sell all that data uh, to make money. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that was the trade-off at that moment in time from 2007 forward with social media. Um, in 2010, a really interesting revolution occurred that has not really come to fruition just yet, but I think will come over time, which is 3D printing hit about $2,500 for a 3D printer. And like all of a sudden people started to realize, oh my God, not only can I go from analog to digital, but I can ultimately over time go from digital to analog. Right. So like, like I wouldn't be surprised if in the next five years, like, and like my kids are younger, my daughter is younger. If I have more than one, then that's a big surprise on this podcast. So I have one, right? But like uh, my daughter is younger than, than your kids, Nigel. But like, like I wouldn't be surprised if in the next five or six years, you see Hershey's come out with like a 3D printer that prints out custom chocolate for you based on whatever you want it to look like, right? And then they just sell you the packets and all of a sudden you have something in your, your kitchen, right? Like there's so many fun things that can happen with 3D printers that haven't even begun to, to evolve. But then in 2018, 2019, the idea of NFTs emerged and people really started to glom onto them this past year when they realized that what they really represented was this. If you're gonna live your entire life online, why be a renter when you can own? And when all of a sudden you can be an owner what all of a sudden people realized is, is that these things can have real value and they can reset economics in a way that like had never existed before. So as an artist, it's amazing, right? If you own a painting, it used to be that you would sell it. And then the person who bought it, who could front the money at that moment in time could benefit on the residual sales down the road. Today with NFTs, you could, the artist can benefit in perpetuity. And so like it resets economics for artists. Um, but there's this great book, and I think this is what people don't realize is happening, and I think that this is a really important evolution in the space, called Bowling Alone um, by Robert Putnam. And it's about the rise and fall of like the American social communities like bowling leagues and like the Rotary Clubs that like used to bring people together where people would have common sort of perspectives. And today, like a lot of people look at things like Nyla's collection, the long necky ladies or cool cats and we laugh about them. But the reality is, is that these JPEGs are just people like and resonate with the art, but their value is really in the community that's attached to them. And then ultimately the utility that comes with them. And what the reason that you're seeing things like CryptoPunks or cool cats or the Board Ape Yacht Club or Nyla's, work like really take off and there's a lot of good ones is because people are finding like-minded people to all of a sudden have relationships with online and like those that plus the utilities creating a value chain that like people have never seen before the nft itself as a technology is fascinating because if you were to take it out of art and community and apply it just to something like deeds to a house like you literally can transfer deeds now more effectively and efficiently using NFT technology. If you were to apply it to, let's say, tickets to a sporting event or a concert, right? Like picture this, if you are the New York Giants and you're selling, you know, front row seats to a game and you sell it for a hundred bucks, which is, let's say the price, um, 
if a scalper now sells that for $500, but you have a 50% residual on the secondary, you've now all of a sudden opened up a new business for yourself if you're the giants. If you're a medical uh, professional- yeah, Interesting, you know, I never thought of that actually. It's like people are not seeing that. And like people see like usually the easiest foray into something, which is art and collectibles. But like the technology itself and the validity and the transparency that it provides is just unbelievable. And then for a brand like Time, and I apologize for the soliloquy on this, but I just love this topic so much. But like for a brand like Time, the relationship that I currently have with our consumer is a very analog one. I say to you, subscribe, you subscribe, I give you everything. And then after that's done, 12 months later, I go subscribe, subscribe, subscribe again. And that, and it's kind of broken and it gets you annoyed. And there's a 10% shot that you don't. And there's a 20% after I bug you five times that you do. And there's all this like historical math that goes with this. With NFTs, I can say, let me give you something of value. And in return, I'm then going to all of a sudden treat your membership into the time community like it's a loyalty program. And that's what I'm going to start to roll out. And since this is not going to go live in a, uh, for, a few, for a few weeks, uh, uh, this is being recorded hours before I actually roll out this initiative for time, and which is why I'm also drinking the seltzer. So wow. can I, can I, that's it's extraordinary. That's, it's totally extraordinary. And there's, there's one, there's, there's a thing that's, 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 that you've already brought up um, that I don't, still don't know the answer to in all of this, it, and it's the, it's the relevancy. Because you talked about relevancy before, you mentioned it in interviews you've done in the past, and you certainly mentioned it today. So, question for you, if you can, I mean, if it's answerable, I don't know if it is. Who's creating the relevancy for the product? Is it you, or is it the consumer, or is it both? I mean, does it have to be symbiotic? Like you're, you're sitting there saying, no one's seeing this at the moment. No. So, who's who's going to create? How how is relevancy created in 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 this? Sure. So so I think that with uh, the uh, Web3 movement, which I think is a very community-based movement. Uh, the relevancy is happening, you know, online in front of everyone, um, but not a lot of people are paying attention to it, right? And I think that, you know, if you look, more and more people started to pay attention to it when Beeple's piece went for $69 million at Christie's, right? Because they all of a sudden started to understand that there was this new way of thinking and consuming art. Um, I think that when Saturday Night Live did a uh, piece on uh, uh, NFTs, like people started to see it more. Um, but like the reality is, is that it's still a very small moment in time, right? Like we're at the early, early adoption phase, but that phase could grow very fast. And like the example I would give is, is OpenSea, which is one of the biggest marketplaces for NFT transactions, became a unicorn uh, you know, just about a month ago, if if that long ago. Um, and, you know, if you look at their data, they only have 345,000 active wallets on their site. And I think when I met with them back in March for the first time, they, at that point, they only had 50,000 active wallets. And most people have multiple wallets. So, like, we're talking about a small group of the global community that's using this today. But, like any sort of transition, I think that it's going to be small until it's not small, and then it becomes really fast. Keith, can, so, I, can I just on that note, I mean, what's so interesting about what you're saying is, is that, you know, for example, I hadn't 
really even heard of OpenSea yeah. until like three months ago or whatever, four months ago. And, and now I'm, I'm hearing it daily. Um, and, you know, my son, who is a, a bit of an artist in his own right and has always loved drawing and creating, unbeknownst to me, had been creating art on his computer for years. And he, you know, he's always had, you know, is a sort of incredible imagination. And he came up to me just about two weeks ago and said, I want to do NFTs and I've opened it. And he's 15 and he has, his, he has a bit of his own money, he has his own bank card and stuff like that. But normally I would be the one in control or helping him do stuff. But the world has changed so much. And he's like, I've, I've opened, you know, I have my own uh, Ethereum wallet and I've uh, opened an account on uh, OpenSea and I'm, you know, and I'm launching my artwork. I want to launch my artwork. Can you help me with it? And it was, and I was, I literally was like, what, what are you talking, like, what is going on now? You know, and, and the fact that a 15 year old can be so plugged in, have this kind of access, be sorting out his own life, his own world. I was like, this is a new, completely new, it's a revolution. It, it is, it's exactly a revolution and it's, it's a revolution and it's an evolution and it's a generational change. And, you know, like, like I'll never forget the day that like my mother called me up and was like, Keith, set me up with the Twitter, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'm like, wow, Twitter's mainstream now, right? And like, there's, there are obstacles right now to, to, to the NFT revolution. I think that the UI is, uh, you know, not perfect, uh, but that will change. That will get better. You know, the fact that you have to, you know, buy Ethereum, transfer Ethereum to a digital wallet, get the digital wallet connected. It's complicated. Like it's not easy for the everyday person. Right. But, but again, those things will, will evolve. There's so obvious disconnects. But the transition to the fact that like people are living their entire lives online and once you live your life online and you have an ownership stake, the ownership ability is so valuable. And like, I mean, Nigel, if you think back to, you know, your days as a photographer, right? Like when you own, you know, a Louis Vuitton product or you own like a, an Hermes product, or if you own like a beautiful product, it's a badge, right? Like, and that's, and that's a really important aspect of who you are. It symbolizes your personality, who you are. When you're living your entire life online and you can own something today, that ownership, right? Your Nyla piece, your long necky lady, Allison Harvard's PFP of her, you know, cool cat is a badge, right? It's not, it's an expression of who she is to a community at large. And like the same way that people can understand that in the physical world, they're going to start to understand that in the digital world. And, you know, the more that people start to evolve into, you know, AR, which will come and it won't be as crazy as people think, but like, as they start to see certain things and they have different types of avatars, like you're going to see luxury brands quickly and Dolce and Gabbana did this and, and Gucci's, I believe, you know, on the verge of doing this, like quickly making sure that if you have the physical good, your physical good also comes with a digital replica that is an NFT that your avatar can have. And why wouldn't you want that, right? If you're in the real world buying Gucci, like I want my you know, digital representation of me to have the same Gucci experience as well. And like, I think that the brands that recognize that 
will do extraordinarily well. And I think that the brands that put their head in the sand and say, no, this is not real. I think that this is going to come and go and they're going to find that they're going to lose market share faster than they've ever seen with a combination of online sales, you know, eating at retail sales plus this type of revolution occurring. It's, it's, it is extraordinary. I mean, it's, Every time you know I hear you talk about it too, it just becomes a little bit clearer. And you've you've you, you know, and this is I know this is a very hot topic at time, and that you guys are sort of in deep on this. But you know, you talked about community too, and and how this community is helping one another, and you that's a big part of you know what time is about is creating that community. You know, I the, the first person who I sort of contacted when my son told me he wanted to do, you know, create his own NFT collection and what have you, was actually Nyla. I, I, I directly on Twitter um, messaged her and she's been incredibly helpful. And it's just one of those things, again, where you know, this is the sort of thing that you just never used to have in the past, where people would be very helpful, would give you tips, would help you out, would try and talk to you about what to do. And, and I just thought it was such an interesting thing because I said to my son, I'm like, you know, this girl's 12, you're 15, you're not so dissimilar. You know, you know, my son's shy by nature, but, and, but, but when he's online, he can and when he's creating it, it comes out in him. And it's sort of it's an amazing outlet. And, you know, so it, I, and I think this whole past year with the pandemic and everything has been so difficult for kids, especially who have been stuck. And their only way of expressing themselves is, is through a medium like this, through, you know, Zoom or, a, you know, through art online or digital, some digital experience. And so for them, this is a complete new reality. You know, and they've grown up with it. It's no longer, it's, it's, it's still a bit strange to me, but they've spent the past two years of their life, which is a big percentage of their life at this point, um, living through a digital platform. You know, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting how this sort of community, because I often look negatively on social media, but this seems like a, like a positive ray of light. I mean, the one thing I will say about the NFT community that I've loved more than anything else is it's positive, it's inclusive, um, it's collaborative. Uh, and, and it's nice when it wants to be nice. Like, I, I mean, like, like every community, you know, has, has its exceptions, but I found that when you show that you're willing to invest in this community, this community has reciprocated very strongly. And, and I really, I really love that. And the fact that you told that story about Nyla doesn't surprise me. And at the same time, like actually just continues to validate my belief in, in this. And, you know, if we as as species have sort of learned anything over the past two years, right? It's like we're only getting out of this crap uh, if we could help each other, right? Sure. And if we could pull each other up, and like we like all these, all regardless of where we are, even if you're in the UK, right? Like uh, Tom, you know, but like uh, you know, like like, and that's that's the positive that I try to find and that I try to look at, and that's what I'm so attracted to is this notion that. You know, like all these structures that we thought were there to help us, to protect us, to have in place are doing decent jobs at times or not. But like, it's really individuals helping other individuals right now in manners that like, I don't think we've ever seen before. And when stories like what you just said come out, like it just, it, it, it just warms my heart. And that's also why like going back to New York Cares, like it's so important to me that like I'm, I'm involved in that organization.
It's like you've done this before because I my next I literally I was about to say so that brings us through to New York cares and you just you already you led yourself in Keith you led yourself you opened the door let's go there let's go straight there you're a board member of New York cares and you you know how to organically integrate from one to the other I love it it's just make my job I don't have a job anymore I could just sit here hand it over to, to, to well, Keith you can make sourdough bread right I I, I, in fact I'm going to enjoy a slice you know right after this I think of my wife it's not me who makes it it's my wife um, have you had Nigel's sourdough bread? Um, you just need bread. Well, it, when you were last here, Tom, it was probably a year and a half ago, and we weren't really making it. We started make Chrissy, my wife, started making it. It's not me who makes it. I photograph her making it. So it looks Nigel's like, like, lacti lacti Nigel's like got, got a real tolerance of it. Well, apparently, anyway, it might be attention seeking, but he can't drink milk, he can't eat bread, he can't, he can't hit six foot four, he can't, you know. <laughs> My All wingspan, right, uh, though, is like six eight. Just wait FYI. a minute. I, I just out of curiosity, how before we get to New York Coast, how do the two of you know each other? Tom, school, school. We've known each other since we were about 14, 13. We were we were best friends at school and have been ever since. But you know, you're talking about your, your daughter going to the same school you went to. Tom's daughter, Ava, my godchild. Um, also went to Bryanston, which is the school that Tom and I went to. So we also got to vicariously go through our childhood a little bit, you know, again, as, the, as, as Tom's daughter went there and my niece went to our, my school as well. And kind of, you know, we got to experience that again. So we understood when you said that, I saw Tom nod because um, I know that he, he went through that a bit himself. Well, New Year's Eve is almost here and Lix is here to help so that there is less time spent on prep and more time to party. Lix created the first pre-mixed RTD cocktail shot in 2014, giving consumers a premium shot that can be used for home entertaining, boat, beach, tailgating and many other places where making a mixed shot is either difficult or impossible. The shots are made from premium spirits, real fruit juice, and natural flavors that easily bring expert mixology into your home. Lix also recently launched three wine-based cocktails in margarita, strawberry margarita, and mojito, and come made to drink, so all you need to do is pour over ice to enjoy. Containing 10 cocktails in every bottle, all are 13.9% ABV, use real fruit juice and are gluten-free. These one and a half litre bottles are now available for purchase across the US in major retailers like Walmart, Total Wine and thousands of independent liquor stores for the limited time sale price of $14.99. For double the fun, Lix is also offering a margarita box that is three litres. That's the equivalent to 20 drinks which is available exclusively at Walmart for $19.99. Find your closest retailer on Licks.com. Cheers. So Keith, New York cares. Yeah. So, I mean, look, extraordinary organization. I've, I've been to their events even in the past, you know, New York's largest volunteer network. What are you hoping to achieve sort of next for New York Cares? Where does it go? Where does it, is there an 
end goal? Are you hoping to have permanent change? I mean, there's, obviously there's a need for this volunteering. There's a need for this additional help, but that's because we don't have enough money in the budget to, to actually do the job right in the first place. What is the deal? Um, so, so I chose New York Cares because I actually love what it does, which is like it, it, the way that my mind works is I look at, at um, I looked at a lot of different organizations uh, when I was at Bloomberg, uh, knowing that I was going to join something to give back, right? And um, and what I liked at the end of the day about New York Cares was it's just a platform for doing good, right? So like it doesn't like if you care about Nigel, you know, uh, soup kitchens, it will just connect you with volunteer networks that are in the soup kitchen. And if Tom, for instance, wants to, you know, uh, work at food pantries and deliver to, you know. Um, uh, elderly homebound individuals, you know, it'll connect you to that. And if you care about education, it will, you know, help you with either tutoring or, you know, various different educational sort of activities. And like, so at the end of the day, what I love about New York Cares is it ultimately does not care what your concern is. It just removes the obstacle of doing good in society. So it's almost like a platform for doing good. And I, I, I just wanted to empower that. Right. And I started to think about myself and I'm like, where is my largest scalable influence? And so like my largest scalable influences are, uh, you know, at my professional capacity at Bloomberg or now at Time, right, or at New York Cares, right, where I can help ensure that like the most people can possibly volunteer to help other people get through a challenge, whether that challenge is A, B, or C. Um, and, uh, and I could also raise money for, for ensuring that the great work that this organization does continues on. Within New York Cares, though, because it's so broad, um, and it's it, just a great team and a great board, and, um, uh, you know, and, and I feel very lucky to be part of it, like I've taken on chairmanship of what's called Stand With Students. And Stand With Students really focuses on New York City's um, most vulnerable Title I schools. These are the schools that like need the most funding but are not getting it, have the most homeless children going to it, are the kids that are at the poverty line that need you know, uh, meals during the day um, that are suffering the most during the digital divide. And for me, like that hits home because I worry about um, I worry about future generations and where, what happens in a society when, like, you see one group of people have everything and do okay, and then you have another group of people constantly being sort of left behind, and then it getting exacerbated through things like this pandemic. And so, you know, like, I look at my daughter and, and, and I think to myself, she's fine. She's going to go, goes to a great school. She's going to have a great life. But, like, I need to make sure that all of those kids that are not in that position that I can help and, and try to benefit, like that's where I wanna put as much of my time as I possibly can. The amazing Keith Grossman, everybody. Um, Keith, what a pleasure to have you on the Shaken and Stirred show. It's, it's, I can't believe it's literally an hour has gone by in a flash and a heartbeat. And, and I could talk to you for hours and hours. I, I wish we were having a drink by a bar and I could spend the night just the evening chatting away, which is kind of what Shaken and Stirred was designed for. Um, well 
next time you're in with the Chin Twins, please, you know, uh, give me a call and let me know. Like, I'd love to see you. You know, like if, if you're, I know you're just upstate, right? But like, absolutely, if, we'll we'll, we'll definitely yeah. we're in this week a few times. We've got you know a few different things happening, but we're in quite often. So let's do something together. But before we let you go, we have something very quick we do, which is called Last Orders, which is a sort of rapid fire, quick question thing that will will we'll wrap us up and out of here just to get a little bit more insight on Mr. Grossman himself. Take it away, okay. Tom. And I've been, yes, I've been given the, the job of asking you, I've formulated the questions, which is actually, is actually quite tricky to do it, it, before and before you've spoken to someone, because it's, a, it's because the, as we said, we don't have questions that we don't have pre, we don't have standard questions. So you, you, you figure out what you want to ask. So I figured out what I want to ask. Then try and pick the, some questions that, um, that are relevant to what we've discussed. So here goes. Um, and the, actually, I'm talking about one thing that we haven't discussed that I would like to discuss. Just get your view on it. So very, very quickly, Bitcoin, regulate or not? I mean, I, I in full disclosure, own Bitcoin. I, I think that uh, more regulation and clarity is only good for the space. Um, uh, I know that that's a weird position to be in, but like, I think that the more clarity that, uh, you know, a decentralized, you know, structure, you know, can have, uh, in terms of how it can coexist, uh, the better. Ah, okay. Well, that answers the question. And then, because I'm talking about, someone was talking earlier on, I heard today, I overheard a conversation about the fact that they were, they were the value of Bitcoin, they, they were discussing regulating Bitcoin. I don't know where that came from. It might have just been one of those conversations that you over here, but you know. I think, it's, I think it's one of those things because a lot of people look at Bitcoin and they don't understand how something can be decentralized, have value, not have a government backing it, and um, uh, and like like and be considered a store of value. Um, no. Uh, you know, like, and have as much fluctuations as it does. Um, I think that in countries like the UK or the US, where the currency is very stable, it's very easy to understand why those curiosities would exist. In countries like, um, uh, you know, I, I don't want to actually name countries, that, but in countries that have huge fluctuations in their current mm -hmm. um, uh, currencies, I can understand why people would want to have an alternative. Um, in an instance where countries are constantly pumping tons of money into the environment to um, fund either, you know, um, uh, COVID relief or infrastructure and inflation is taking place. I, I think that the question people want to ask is, is this really a good long-term solution for a lot of governments to take, or is this a short-term solution and what's the way out of it? And I think that that's the attraction of cryptocurrencies, especially something like Bitcoin that has a limited amount. Interesting. I always think that it's just a lot of people trying to make a lot of money fast. <laughs> well, that's just, you know, it. Like my parents' generation, all the guys smoke and mirrors, smoke and mirrors. But I mean, obviously, there's a little bit more to it than that. Now, so I go, well, I've got two more questions. With NFTs a threat to reality or, or an aid and a creator of reality? I think that uh, only good comes from the continued evolution and revolution that this space provides. Last question, print and digital, can they coexist? Yeah, of course. In the future? Yes, of course. Like, uh, uh, you know, like my job is not to dictate 
uh, how someone wants to engage with our brand. If somebody wants to engage with it and read the magazine, I totally respect that. If somebody wants to engage with us digitally, I totally respect that. If there's another form of media, I totally respect that. My goal is, is not to force form factor on individuals. It's to provide the choice and to run a smart business, right? And a profitable business over time. Um, now, do you think personally though, that, do you think personally though, that, that the, I mean, I love the tangible, con you know, I love the tan tangible, I love the, you know, I don't have something in my hands to read, but then again, you know, Kindles came along, it's a, it, you know, it's, do you think I, it all? I, I mean, here's, here's what I would say is, is the weirdest way to think about the question of print and digital is, is this, is um, every day that somebody is born, literally born onto this planet, and every day that somebody dies, like, so what a morbid way to end a drinking sort of podcast. Mm -hmm. None of us are drinking except for you who have like your syrupy drink, Nigel, right? But every day that someone's born and somebody dies, um, a new print reader is not born at a one-to-one -one ratio as one that has passed away. And nobody knows what that ratio is. And to be honest, that ratio is totally irrelevant too. And so what it just simply means is, is that the universe of print readers over time will continue to shrink, but it doesn't mean that it will disappear any time in our lifetime. And, um, you know, like people, especially in media, have a huge misperception that print is dead. Um, we currently have about 1.2 million people who read time still in print. Right. So while our percentages may have shifted in terms of where it is, there's still a large group of people who read it. But what's really interesting is the demographic who reads time in print is totally different than the demographic who reads time online and is different than the demographic who reads time, uh, you know, socially and is different than the demographic who buys time through NFTs. And um, like, I ultimately just want to make sure that time is relevant to you know, as many people as possible and is, you know, as, as my email says, and I think is an important sort of mission for the brand is ultimately building a better future. And so, you know, like, I don't know why people want to believe that it's always an either or, I think that both can coexist. Um, I think if you remember, and Nigel, this will really throw you off to end on this analogy, but right, um, what was the first video to ever air on, MTV, which was a uh, video killed the radio yeah, star. Yeah. Right. And like the reality is, is it didn't, you know, radio evolved, right. I probably listen to more podcasts than I do, you know, uh, anything else. I read more than I've ever read before, sometimes physically, sometimes on my phone, uh, you know, uh, uh, instant coffee did not kill, uh, you know, the classical thing, uh, you know, things split and then they coexist. And then they the, the, the question. So you asked the question, and you've 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 now raised a new question as to whether or not you've just uh, accidentally reformatted the way we do this. The thing at the end that I, we, I was trying to do, which I refer to as quick fire. Yeah. We might have to read nice. We we may have just reclaim. It was a very very. Do you know what they were? The they opposite were of quick fire. Single single answer questions. Keith once again has decided to change the entire format. Yes. Well, I, I'm sorry. I'm the longest segment of the show. Very long winded mood tonight. So so it's I just it's I, incredibly I, philosophic tonight, Keith Grossman. Uh, but we do actually have one last question for you, Keith. That wasn't the last question. That was a joke. The last question is simply shaken or stirred, Keith.
stirred. And there you have it, people. He doesn't and need by it. The way, can I just on one final plug? <laughs> Please. If I was to have a drink, it would have been a Lafroig. Wow. Hey, okay. whiskey man. I just, I just want, I just want to put it out there. Yes. So, so you know, like I feel like I got so much crap about the Lafroig at the beginning. I figured I'd give you a little respect at the end and tell you it would have been a Lafroig. So, from a Lafroig to a Lafroig. I mean, there's like two letters different to people, but it tastes an awful, awful lot different. Anyway. That should be the title of this one, from LaCroix to LaFroig. <laughs> Keith Grossman, president of Time Magazine, NFT expert, New York Cares board member, and good friend. Mate, thanks so much. We love Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Have a wonderful week. Your launch. Thanks, Keith. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken Instead. We will be back next week with a, another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya.